Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Doable Discipleship, or as we like to call it, the show that helps you grow. I'm your co-host, Brandon Robinson, and today we have an incredibly special interview for you. Rob Jacobs and I, we interviewed Ken Baugh. Now, Ken Baugh is a longtime friend of Saddleback. He actually used to be on staff uh, as a pastor at Saddleback. Um, he's a discipleship coach. He's a spiritual director. Um, and he also is the author of a new book called Unhindered Grace is what we talk about today. Listen to Pastor Rick's words about this. He says, Ken Baugh is a well-trusted well for his decades of insightful teaching, practical coaching, empathetic counseling, and authentic pastoring. Now in this wonderful new book, Ken has distilled much of his wisdom for a wider audience. I hope everyone reads this book and then buys a copy for a friend. This book, this book and this interview is for you. If you feel stuck, if you're feeling like, you know what? I'm just not growing at the rate and speed that I used to. And what happened? Ken gets into all of that. And let me tell you, it is so, so good. It's going to be one of these episodes that I come back to uh, regularly um, just to be refreshed in. It, it is so good. So without further ado, guys, enjoy our conversation with Ken Bach. Ken, we're here. Rob, we're here. We're ready to talk about it. Um, Ken, before we get into the uh, into your book, Unhindered Abundance, and there's so much good stuff there. Before we get into that, I want to have our listeners get a feel for who you are. Get a feel for, okay, who's Ken Ba? What makes him tick? How did you even get into um, this lane, this spiritual formation, discipleship, coaching? How did you get here? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. You know, I'm a pastor at heart, and I've been in local church ministry. I was, in lo I was a local church pastor for 25 years. And even then, I really loved pouring into people and would meet with guys for coffee and walk them through books and talk through spiritual things. And it, it's just kind of been a part of my DNA from the very get-go. And then when I started my doctoral work, I really wanted to go as deep into what is discipleship as I possibly could, because I really saw that as the next 25 years of ministry for me. And so that one thing led to another. I wrote my dissertation, which was titled Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And then the book Unhindered Abundance really came out of all of that research and all of that work, as well as, you know, now my 30 plus years of ministry experience and my 46 years of being a follower of Jesus. Wow. Um, so that's really interesting. And I, there's something there I want to hit on. So you wrote about emotionally healthy, um, was it your doctoral research, emotionally healthy spirituality? Yeah. So, In uh, so my doctoral dissertation okay. was looking at how do we actually grow? And uh, I looked at it from a theological, psychological, and neurological dynamic. So where I was coming from was the reveal study that Willow Creek did uh, a number of years ago. They found that a very large majority of their people felt stuck in their faith and were discouraged in 
their in their in their church experience and they were leaving the church by the droves and they couldn't figure out why that was happening so that dynamic of being stuck in your faith really resonated with me because mm. over the years as being a pastor I would have conversations with people and they would come in my office and they would say things like, Ken, please tell me there's more to the Christian life than this. Right. And what they meant by this was another program, another series, another campaign, another mission trip, another whatever. And it's not that any of those things are bad and nor were they busted on those, but they were just saying, I feel like I've gone as far as I can in my faith and I don't know what the problem is. And so that led me to this journey of trying to figure out what keeps us stuck, what gets us stuck in the first place, what keeps us stuck, and then how do we get out of it? And that really is what led to a deeper dive, both theologically, psychologically, and neurologically. Yeah, I think, I think that's something that feels, at least for me, pretty common. Like that's been my experience as well. And I'm, I'm curious to know, and Rob, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Has that been, Ken, was that something that was personal for you that you're like, you know what, I've, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've, I've lived there. Um, Rob, same thing. I've been there. Is that something that is, because for me, 100% feeling like, okay, so what now? What is yeah. the next step for me? Um, and you start to almost feel like scratch and claw for, for anything, or you, you start to hear things like, I don't know, I feel like the pastor needs to go deeper. Um, or I feel like I'm not being fed meat, or I feel like um, whatever those things are, or you feel like, you know what, I, I don't feel the same passion I felt. I don't feel the same spark that I did when I was reading the Bible before, um, where everything felt fresh and new and exciting. And now it just feels like, what did the pastor say about this? Or how should I be thinking about this? Or what, what you know, you, you almost feel like you're losing a little bit of yourself in that Um has that been your experience, Rob? Has that been your experience as well? Well, so go ahead, Rob. Well, no, I well, I just like setting Ken up, I guess. When I met Ken, um, he was working with our campus pastors around some of these some of these ideas, and I had been in a place which, and it's funny saying, well, I'm the discipleship pastor at the church, but I felt like I was kind of stuck, like, um, and. Fortunately, God kind of led me to celebrate recovery, not because I thought, oh, I have some specific hurt habit or hang up or something that, but I wanted to go and experience it because I had referred so many people to it. And mm -hmm. once I got there, I realized, oh, I actually do have a hurt and I do have a hang up and I have a habit. It's called fear and anger. And it, those fear and anger were coming from a hurt. And so I, in Celebrate Recovery, start processing in a very safe place with people that aren't judging you, that are simply listening to you as you work and process and, you know, you and God. And then when I, when I met Ken and, you know, we started talking and I'm, I start sharing with him, gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm going to the next level in my relationship with God. I'm making some, I feel like I'm I'm tapping on something. And he, Ken's like, yeah, that's called the wall. You're tapping on the wall because you're stuck. And, and you're in the place where you're working on your emotional um, wounds and those things, that's going to help you to take you into the next place of your discipleship, really into the next place of your life with Jesus, which is like, who doesn't want that? So that's when I got to 
get to know Ken and some of the, so I've, I've been like going back, I've been waiting for this book. Thank you now press for putting this out. I've been waiting for this book for like two years. So, uh, and I'm glad that now, you know, all of our listeners are going to get a chance to hear about this book, but um, yeah, it's that, it's that piece that started to set me up to realize, oh, they're, they're, I'm not, I'm not, there's, there's more of God out there for me act more of God in me, right? Christ in me. Mm. And I need to, and I, and I can, and I can, I can move into those places, but it's not going to happen just purely on more Bible knowledge. What I need to, to do is start to address some of the things that are holding me back in my own life. And that comes from like what some of the things celebrate recovery or even our counseling ministry, or just like those things have been, you know, well, that's for broken people. And it was like, yeah, well, I am. <laughs> Turns out I am too. Um, right. So, yeah, I felt stuck. And I realized that the way through was dealing with my emotional pain. Yeah. And so my story is very similar. I, I'm, a, I'm a prodigal. So I had a, a pretty long run in a life of, you know, just debauchery, you know, alcohol and sex and trying to numb my own emotional pain. So my story really is woven through the entire narrative of unhindered abundance. So a lot of what comes out in the book as far as a deeper understanding of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus and what is the abundant life and how is that even possible? And what does it mean to become like Jesus? All of those things, that has been my journey. And so and there's still days, to be honest with you, where I feel stuck. So it's not something I think any of us ever arrive at. I think it's a progressive process where we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there are days where I feel like I take two steps backwards and one step forward. And trust me, it's not because I lack the theological Bible knowledge. So there's something more because I've been studying the Bible and teaching the Bible and preaching the word for 30 years. So that was another thing that was really helpful for me is realizing that it's not, it's not more Bible knowledge. And again, I'm not busting on the importance of scripture in our spiritual life at sure. all. But I think we need to be careful that we don't idolaterize it. And I know that might sound weird, but it's not unlike what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5. He said simply, you think that by, by reading the scriptures, you merit eternal life, but the scriptures talk about me, and yet you won't come to me for eternal life. So if we're going to go down this road that Bible knowledge equals and produces transformation, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees should have been the most spiritually mature people, and we know, of course, that they were not. And so as important as scripture is, there's something else, and that something else that helps to inform us, doesn't take precedence over it, it informs us, is general revelation, which is where I put under that banner of general revelation, I put the sciences, psychology, uh, neuroscience, sociology, philosophy, whatever you have. None of that trumps special revelation, scripture. But because it's truth, and we have to be discerning, but because it's truth, it's going to point us to a better understanding, not only of who we are, but of who God is as well. Because 
in Romans 1, Paul said even his divine nature has been clearly seen through creation. So the general revelation is a big deal that I think has really been missed in our conversation about discipleship. That's good. Um, so what I'm thinking, let's let's get into some of that now, right? So we're, we're feeling stuck is almost a universal feeling among Christians. But I think what we'd say on the other side of that feeling stuck is the abundant life or the abundant life we read about in scripture, you know, that Jesus promised. Um, yet it feels like we're living in in between those two things, in, in that gap space. So can walk us through what is the abundant life? What does that look like? you know, boots on the ground in real time for us right here. So I understand the abundant life to be something that Jesus has made available to us right here and right now. <clears throat> so it's not that we have to die and go to heaven before we experience the abundant life. Certainly the fullness of the abundant life that is available to us is not going to be actualized in this life. But I think there's more potential than we ever dream possible. So the way that I define the abundant life, it is taking on the character of Christ, which is probably easy, the most easily recognized as the fruit of the spirit. It's not limited to that, but it's, it's, it certainly would be, include that. It's taking on the character of Christ and the quality of life that's really important that Jesus experienced while he was on earth. The reason I think the quality of life is important is because it comes out of Jesus quality of life came out of his relationship with the father, his being filled with the spirit and his relationship with people, specifically the disciples. I would put Mary, Martha and Lazarus in there as his good friends. Uh, and even with the 12 scripture alludes to that he spent even more time alone with Peter, James and John. So there's this dynamic, relational dynamic that is an essential component to discipleship. And as when we get into the neuroscience, we'll discover that the right side of the brain, the right hemisphere of the brain is actually where character takes place, character formation takes place. And that's all about relationship. It's all about attachment, bonding, uh, emotion, all of those dynamics are all right brain dynamics. And that is basically the channel, if you will, through which transformation, character transformation comes. Hey Ken, talk about um, the idea of deception, Satan's lies, and how we kind of counter and compare that with the truth of God's word. So this is why a, a place where you're showing actually how powerful and important scripture is to speaking into the um, our emotional side. But Talk about that, that, that battle right there and then, and how shame and fear are worked into lies. Yeah, that's the whole rest of the podcast, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot there. Okay, so let's talk about deception. First of all, we know that Satan is the great deceiver, right? He tried to deceive, he, he did deceive Eve in the garden. He tried to deceive Jesus in the wilderness so that's his MO. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. Jesus, even in John 10, 10, where before he said that he came to give life, the abundant life, he said, the thief comes to you, kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full or to uh, abundant. And that the word that Jesus uses there for abundance is a flourishing life. It's the picture of 
just sheep that are so satiated on grass. They're just kind of lying there in the sun. It's like, you know, after we have a big Thanksgiving meal, we're lying on the couch and we're just going, uh, I never want to eat again. You know, there's just, there's just this fully, you know, fulfilled experience. That's what Jesus came to, to make available to us. And so Satan wants to take that away. He wants, he doesn't want us to know that. He doesn't want us to recognize our identity in Christ. That's a whole nother component to this. That you are a child of God, that you are a son or a daughter of God, that you are his beloved, that you are a saint, that, that you are, uh, that you are one in Christ, that you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In my book, I have a whole chapter where I go through all of these deceptions and how Satan tries to deceive us about the truth about who God is, about the truth about who we are, and about the truth about others. And being that God is a relational being, right? He's existed in a small group for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us in his image and likeness. Therefore, part of what that means is that we are relational beings. So we can't separate our growth and transformation as a solo thing that it's just me and God because he didn't create it to work that way. He created it to work certainly in a relationship with him and a relationship with others. So Satan wants to get in and muck up the water. So the, where shame and fear kick into this is that those are, those are dynamics of, of him. Whenever you experience shame and fear, those are just like the fingerprints of Satan. You know spiritual warfare is going on. Because shame attacks us at our core. Shame essentially is the narrative that you are unlovable, you are unworthy of love. Basically, you're just a dirty, rotten scumbag. And, you know, basically you should just die. That's kind of the, that's the narrative that he wants us to buy into and believe. Right. It's kind of the worm theology that some people struggle with today. And the fear that kicks in is this fear of being alone, this fear of rejection or abandonment or criticism or judgment. And what happens both with shame and fear is that it triggers the fight flight freeze response in the brain and then you basically lock up so when we are in a when we are in a, a time where we're experiencing fear and shame basically our prefrontal cortex where we do all of our rational thinking goes offline because our our fear component our amygdala is going off the charts and so it kind of just takes over and so satan wants to keep us in that place of fear and he wants to keep us stuck in shame. And all of that gets exacerbated in secrecy and in isolation, which is why relationships are so essential. Yeah, and you even hear behind that then, like kind of the DNA of Saddleback, talking about everyone needs to be in a group. And then even within the group, we talk about spiritual friendship, you know, that person that you can share safely, honestly, get honest feedback from and be able to start to process these things. And I, and I think like and Celebrate Recovery, you know, is another place that helps support that. But <clears throat> I, I think about like my own story of, and that Ken has walked with me through these last few years of, <clears throat> I had real issues around my dad. Um, and so Satan used that that issue with my dad who left my, my mom when I was very young and to say, see, that's, that's what dads do. They abandon you and you, and God, mm -hmm. the father, 
What's that? He's just a dad. And what does your dad do? He abandoned you too. God, the father's not with you. <clears throat> and so think about then how my, my approach to praying to God, my approach of how I think about God, how I, how I see him, even how, you know, like maybe even putting dents in my theology, because like I would have, I know what the good theology says, the orthodox, right? Here's what we believe. But then there's like, yeah, but does my life reflect that? No, it doesn't. Cause in my, cause in the end, I just think, well, dad's just abandoned you. That's what they do. <clears throat> and so that sets up a pattern in my life again and again, and again, that hinders and gets some way of creates a barrier to a deeper, more bonded, more present relationship with Jesus and with the father, <clears throat> because I start to process the fear and the shame and I start to recognize the lies. And I, and can you brought up to in your book, that list of uh, identity pieces. I like, I, I took that list and basically turned it into a prayer to just constantly filling my mind with the truth of God's scripture about who I was to overcome my fear, to overcome my shame. And to say that I am in a sense, allowing myself to be refathered with God, the father, the perfect father. And, and that has made such a difference in my life. That is when people start to talk about all oh, the, you know, the abundance life or the flourishing. It's like those things did not start to become a reality for me until I really processed fear and shame into the truth, biblical truth, what the word says about me and who I am and who my father is. And uh, to then take that and be able to reconcile with my father and say, mm. I forgive you. Like you were a kid too. Like, I, and just, and so the power of God's truth working against our emotional shame and fear that Satan's trying to mess with us all the time. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking Testament to that. Well, and fear and shame create this dynamic duo that is very potent because the fear is that I'm, I'm unworthy of love. I'm going to get rejected, abandoned, criticized, whatever. And the shame is, well, yeah, the reason that that's going to happen to you is because you're unworthy because you're, you're dirt. And so it creates this dual dynamic where you have this, this, very diminished perception of yourself, which is not a biblical perception, by the way, right? There's this whole mindset of, well, I'm just a scumbag. I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner and blah, blah, blah. Hey, if you're in Christ, you are no longer referred to as a sinner. Yes. God refers to you as a saint. Yes. yes, we still sin, but we sin. We're saints who occasionally sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. And so these identity scriptures that are so essential, I have a whole uh, appendix on those in um, pages 195 and 196, where I go into those. That's the truth that Rob is talking about. And as we are focusing on that truth, what it's doing in our brain is it's creating a neural pathway that the more we focus on something, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so that becomes part of what enables us to, uh, to, to move beyond the fear and the shame and to take the thoughts that come that are satanic in origin captive to Christ. I think that's part of what Paul is saying when he, when he talks about taking every thought captive, essentially he's saying, 
take every thought that you have and then hold that thought up to the truth of God's word. So essentially you're comparing this thought with God's truth. And what are you going to choose to believe? And the sad thing for me is that a lot of believers choose to believe Satan's lies over God's truth, which is one of the big reasons they stay stuck. Well, Ken, I, what I love that you talked about our identity, you know, we're, we're not, we're no longer dirty, rotten sinners, but we're, we're saints. We are in Christ. Um, I was previously a part of a church. One of the things I love that the pastor said there, he, he abolished saying, I'm just a sinner. He's like, that's absolutely not true. You're not just a sinner. You are in Christ now. And because you're in Christ, you are a saint, you are a son, you are a daughter, uh, you are a child of King Jesus in his kingdom. Um, and that had such an impact on me. One of the things I'm curious about though, you talked about what are we gonna choose to believe, right? God's truth or a lie from Satan. But it feels like a lot of times the lie, there's something uh, almost visceral, at viscerally attached to the lie from Satan. It's, uh, um, it feels like it lives in our bodies, like the, the shame. It's, it's something deep in our gut. It's just something fires and goes, I know I'm supposed to believe this, but I just feel contrary. I feel, I, I don't feel that. And when I hear this lie from Satan, I feel that way. And you had uh, in chapter nine, you talked about painful memories. And I think there's something here that's really important for us to connect. Um, I'll just read a little quick excerpt. You said, uh, there's an old saying that time heals all wounds. The idea is that healing for damaged emotions as a result of traumatic or distressing events happens automatically with the passing of time. The truth, however, is that time alone heals nothing. No matter how much time goes by, unresolved emotional pain will not heal by itself. It must be identified and processed, shared with others accordingly. Um, and I read that and I thought, ah, oh, that is beautiful. There is something there because I think that speaks to those feelings that we feel that, that makes it easy to accept that lie or to attach to that lie. I feel like that it's stemming from a place of, of that shame, which is attached to a memory, but I did do this, or this did happen. And I don't know how I, no matter how much time goes by, that doesn't just go away. How should we be thinking about that? Can you help us move beyond that so that we can get to the truth of God? Well, you're more right than you realize, Brandon, when you talk about it's in your body, because that's exactly where it is. And our, our, we are embodied beings, and we can't separate our physical bodies from our discipleship to Jesus. They are interconnected. And the, the dynamic that you're talking about here is, is, a, is a really big deal because the assumption is that if something happened a long time ago, it doesn't matter anymore. And they'll pull a verse from like Philippians 3 where Paul says, you know, I put the past behind me and I strive forward and I move mm -hmm. ahead. And that is tearing that verse so out of context, it makes me really angry because yeah. Paul is not at all talking about emotion there. He's talking about all of his trophies of self-righteousness that he used to think merited his salvation. 
And he's saying, I consider those all dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so the, the thing about the brain is that there is no past, present, and future in the brain. Your brain has 100 billion interconnected neurons in it. It is the, it is the, your hard drive in your head is as large as the World Wide Web. It can, it can contain every, our brains contain every memory we've ever had, every experience, every thought, it's all there. So the idea of going back to your past is a misnomer. There is no past. It is a non, it's a memory that is, it is stored in your implicit memory system and then gets triggered by some current uh, experience and then comes raging to the surface. So we don't forget anything. We just don't have direct access to it. And so wow. all of that pain that we've gone through and experienced, rejection and so forth, that's all there. And the, the left side of the brain, which is where we get all of our rational thinking and data and, and information, where that, that's where we know we're thinking is because that's the, that's the left side of the brain. Well, that actually works slower than the right side of the brain. The right side of the brain processes our surroundings at six times a second. The left side processes at five times a second. So even though we're only talking a second difference from a neurological standpoint, it's a big deal. So what happens is, is the, the information that you become aware of is, is part of the process of healing, but the stuff that's still bothering you, you're not even aware of. And your left brain, the left side of your brain, uh, develops after the right side. So it's, it's about 18 to 24 months that the left side is starting to really come into full development. But before that, the right side of your brain is still taking in data and information, but it's kind of writing it to your body. And there's no words for it because your left side of your brain hasn't been developed yet. You don't have the cognitive resources to be able to mm. interpret and understand and identify and articulate what is happening. And so a lot of times when you have fear or anxiety, depression, uh, you know, then there's a lot of reasons for those things that we can talk about. But a lot of times there's, you can't put your finger on it because it is such a young wound that there were no words for it, but it's still there. It's still bugging you. It's still creating problems. And so uh, you've probably heard about how uh, emotions get triggered. Well, right. that's essentially what's going on is that you have a repressed hurt that kind of puts a box around it, if you will, kind of seals it off, puts yellow tape over it. And there's smoke coming out from behind it. It's like, do not go there. Do not open this door. If you open this door and you're going to die, right? I think those are more <laughs> of Satan's lies. Yeah. And, you know, just pretend that it's, it's not bothering you and just move on and stay busy and throw yourself into whatever or numb the pain with drugs or alcohol or sex or what have you. And, you know, we just don't address it. We don't have a... Sadly, the church today, it's getting better, but still by and large, we do not have a theology for emotion. And I think that's what Pete Scazzaro has really, one of the things that he's really contributed both to the literature and to a growing understanding of discipleship is that whole spirituality dynamic. Uh, and the, I'm sorry, the emotional dynamic of our spirituality. And so uh, it's a very real thing. Here's another thing. I go into great length in my, in my book to, to, to build a theology of emotion, but this is something that I found that most people don't haven't really thought about. God is an emotional being. If right. you doubt that, just read through the Old Testament. For crying out loud, he's, 
he's always talking about how the Israelites, you're whoring yourself after these other gods and I'm your husband and, you know, you're my bride. And, and it's just, he's heartbroken over the, I, the idolatry of his people and the adultery that, you know, that they're uh, living in spiritually. Well, we are created in God's image and likeness. So again, part of what that means is that we're going to be emotional beings. If you just cut your emotions off, you're cutting off, you know, it's like cutting a leg off. You're just, you're not going to function the way that God created you and intended you to function. So emotions are not something for us to be afraid of. I'm not advocating that we let emotions dictate what we do or what we believe or to drive us. Of course not. But they're like a light on your dashboard in your car. When your oil light goes off in your car, if you don't pay attention to that, you're going to have some serious problems. Yeah. And so our emotions help us realize there's something going on. There's something wrong that I need to address that I need to pay attention to. So we don't need to be afraid of our emotions. We need to pay attention to them. Yeah, I think, Ken, <clears throat> one of the things that you have a, an interesting graphic in the book about the heart. And <clears throat> one of the things that you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, <clears throat> the emotions are, are coming through the right side of the brain where we think about our identity, right? And so when something in our life happens, we instantly process through, as you're saying, the right side of the brain. It happens first. It goes through the emotional center. It goes through the identity center. And so how we respond before we even know we're thinking about it, how we respond is based on who we think we are and the emotional things we're carrying. So like we talk about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, the whole Galatians five fruit of the spirit. When, when people encounter a, a stimulus or something happens, very few of us, or maybe I'm the only one, but I don't pause to say, hmm, how will I be loving here to my 10-year-old son who's on the video game too long? How will I be joyful and peaceful and patient? Like I react out of my emotion and my identity. But if we can change through knowledge of what God's word says, if I can bring that from the left side to influence my identity, fill my identity with truth, then I can start to uh, you know, en engage with my emotion, engage with the stimulus, engage and handle the things of life and that come at us in the world. Because I've, I've, I've Christ formed, as you say, I've reformed my identity and my emotions around God's truth. So this is where the knowledge piece actually connects with the emotional piece. It seems like it's. Yeah. And there's a, there's a really important relational dynamic here. So Brandon, this comes back to part of your question you asked a couple of minutes ago. One of the reasons we don't feel, we can know all the verses about God's love, right? We can know all the scripture and we can truly believe it, but it doesn't mean we feel it. So what, what's the disconnect? Why is there a gap mm -hmm. between our knowing God's love and experiencing God's love? That is where there's a barrier. And that is where I believe that we have as believers, one of the privileges that we have as believers is the priesthood of believers, which is to be conduits of God's presence and love and grace and compassion and mercy to each other so that we literally become Jesus with skin onto each other. We have to have relationships where we are experiencing that love, that agape which is god's love and so 
And I don't see, I don't think it's possible to experience that with someone who's not a believer, because when the Holy Spirit in you is connecting with the Holy Spirit in me, there's a spiritual dynamic, a connection that takes place there that can't be done in any other way. So part of the experiencing God's love is through the context of relationships with others. Paul also says in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts. So there's an active work of the Holy Spirit in all of this that is going on. He is the primary agent of change. He is the one that is giving us desire to pursue God. And then as we pursue him, we get more desire. He is the one that brings about uh, you know, truth as the spirit of truth and an understanding of God's word. And then in the relationship with other believers, he ministers to us through other believers as we minister to one another. So again, it, there's, this, there's a number of dynamics that are necessary for this Christ formation to take place. And we can't just pull one of those things out and say, well, this is more important than the other because they're all equally working together. Yeah, Ken, you have, you have a quote in the book from Henry Cloud, another well-known Christian psychologist. And he, he, he says that without relationships, without attachment to God and others, we can't be our true selves. We can't be truly human. Exactly. Exactly. And yes, God created us to be relational beings. That's why I, I always say you cannot grow in Christ alone. It's impossible. Why? Because God designed it to be impossible. The only thing he said in the garden that was not good was what? That Eve was alone. Right. So the only evil in the garden, the only perfection, the only thing that was imperfect was that Adam was alone. Now, it's ironic because I have a whole chapter where I go into all of that. Adam wasn't alone, right? He had a relationship with God mm -hmm. in some form or fashion that was playing itself out. Maybe they walked together in the cool of the day like he and Eve did. I mean, maybe that happened before Eve came onto the scene. I don't know. <clears throat> and he didn't, and he had the animals because he had already named the animals before uh, right. God created Eve. And we know how, you know, animals can be great companions, uh, except for cats. I don't know how cats can be a great companion, <laughs> but anyways. Uh, dogs are great companions. No, sorry to all you cat lovers out there. But no, animals can be very, very helpful. So we know that Adam was alone specifically in that there was no one else like him. And that is a really powerful dynamic. And Rob, you've talked about Celebrate Recovery a number of times. One of the powerful dynamics of Celebrate Recovery or, or any even 12-step is we're all sitting around a circle saying, me too. You are not alone. You are not uniquely broken because we are all broken. If you have a belly button, you're broken because you've been affected and infected with sin. And so we're all in recovery. <clears throat> I used to, when I was uh, coaching the, a lot of the Saddleback pastors, I was, I was advocating that we should put celebrate recovery right in the middle of the circle of the class system so that you have CR and then you have class 101, 201, 301, 401, uh, 501, all coming like spokes. And so all of what's going on in our lives in celebrate recovery then is then going into all of these other dynamics. So that's the first fundamental thing that needs to be so that celebrate recovery isn't just something for those people over there it's for all of us that we normalize this. And I think that's something we really need to do 
as the body of Christ is to normalize uh, brokenness because we're all broken. Some of us are just more aware of it than others. Yeah, I, I love the point of you, one, you, you cannot grow in Christ by yourself. Um, Cause even when we think about like, you know, being saved, you're saved into the family of God. Um, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember in college, um, right when I was just starting to like really walk with God and I really struggled with, um, does God actually love people? And does God actually love us? Does God actually love me? And I had a hard time making that connection because I just felt like, well, why? Why, why would he? Um, and I still struggle with it, but especially at that time, I, I was so tied to performance. Um, and the only way God can love me if I was, if I, felt, I felt like if I was perfect. Um, and there was a, two people actually, I had a mentor of mine um, and then one of the guys that was on my hall. Um, and I would look at them and I'd think, you know what? I know that they both love Jesus. And I know that they both love me and something shifted or clicked in me. And I think it's what you're talking about. Like the spirit of God in me and the spirit of God in them, the spirit was drawing us to each other and drawing us closer to God and drawing me closer to God, drawing me closer to himself. Um, And I can remember thinking, I don't think they're loving me in spite of me. I think they love me because Jesus loves me too. And they love Jesus. Um, and that was a really big paradigm shift for me. Um, but that happened and that, and that wasn't, I'm articulating that now, but I don't think I've ever articulated that before. Um, that was man, 11 years ago, (laughs) not even, no, 12, 13 years ago, actually, I was 19 at the time, I think. Um, but something, the feeling, right? Like you're talking about kind of the right side of the brain, something in me, I was feeling that of, I, this is not in spite of me. I think they actually love me because Jesus loves me. Um, and that was huge. And you've, you've talked about kind of, we got into a little bit of the neuroscience. We've talked about right brain, left brain. Um, can, what, what was it? Was there a moment that made you feel like, you know what, there's something here. There's something with the neuroscience of our brain, the our psychology, like there's something around this that I think that we're missing and need to write about it. What was that moment for you? Well, I have a, I have a background in psychology. So I've studied broadly in that. I have a master, my master's degree is in pastoral counseling and as I was doing my doctoral work, I realized that psychology is helpful in that we know, for example, that developmentally, if there's, if we don't, if we're not, if we don't experience attachment and healthy bonding when we're, when we're infants and when we're young, it's going to affect us in a very dramatic way, in a negative way. So I had a lot of psychological background. So I knew that part of the problem in why people were stuck was because they were coping with their emotional pain in sinful ways. So here, so here's one of the here's one of the dynamics that happened. Let's say a person has been sexually abused, 
that creates an emotional pain. It creates shame. It creates fear. It creates distortions of God, especially if it was a parent that are devastating, that are going to affect that person for the rest of their life until they address it and, and heal that trauma. So very often though, in order to cope with all that pain, they turn to numbing things like drugs, alcohol, sex, workaholism, anything that will distract you or give you peace for a period, even if it's moments, right? You're just looking for that. But those things that we turn to are sinful and sin quenches the work of the spirit in our lives. Sin hinders that work of the spirit. Even when it's sin that I don't think is motivated by just rebellion against God, it's coming from a place of deep brokenness and deep hurt and pain. It's really a cry for relief that we don't know how to get in any other way. And yet it's still sin though, so it still has its consequence of creating this uh, this barrier essentially between us and God. I don't believe we can lose our salvation over that, but it does hinder the relationship. And that's part of what I think keeps people stuck because they're coping with their unresolved emotional pain in a sinful way. So we need to address our emotional pain and we need to go through the process of healing that so we're not acting out in a sinful way. And then I believe that opens back up the channel with the spirit in bringing about our transformation. So that made sense to me. And as I went to scripture, I could, I could see that. What, what was the missing point piece for me was as helpful as that is, what's the process of change? It's not enough to just um, identify the problem, talk it through with somebody else, experience their love and compassion, help rewrite the narrative that it's generating. Those are all really important things, but there's something else going on. And as I kept going back to scripture, I kept seeing this emphasis on how we think, what we think about over and over and over again. For example, Paul in Philippians 4, whatever's good, pure, true, and lovely, think about these things, right? Mm -hmm. There's just this emphasis, both Old and New Testament, of what we think about. And then I started really exploring the heart. And the heart in scripture is referring to our inner being. It's not the muscle that pumps blood through our bodies. It's, it's composed of three primary dynamics, thought, emotion, and will. And this is going back to what Rob alluded to, the diagram that really goes through all of the book. I unpack it in different parts of the book. And I came to realize that the only thing that we actually have control over long-term and directly is our thinking. You can't control your emotions directly and you can only control your will uh, for a certain amount of time, right? We all know that willpower doesn't, is, is unsustainable over the long haul. Just think your last New Year's resolution. But when you go back to scripture over and over and over again, we are exhorted, we are commanded to think about these things, to focus our thinking, Colossians, on things above, to discipline our thinking, taking every thought captive to Christ. And those verses started opening my eyes to a neurological dynamic that at that point I had very little background in. So that just launched me then into a whole study of neuroscience and how the brain, how God created our brain to work. And then that just, it just made sense to me. Well, if God created our brains to work this way, then of course that's going to 
inform us in regard to our quality of life and growing in Christ. And so as I started putting those three things together, a biblical theology, um, an understanding of psychology and neurology, and, and let the science not dictate what is true, but be another reference to that. So it would inform it. It just started opening up uh, a whole nother dynamic. And then fairly recently, I've been introduced to Jim Wilder. So Rob and I have actually been uh, reading a bunch of books by Jim Wilder and, uh, and the team of authors that he works with. Uh, Jim's a neurotheologian. He's been, he's an expert in all of this. Uh, he actually did some very generous editing in my book uh, and helped me understand much better the dynamic between the right and the left brain. My book is very left brain, uh, but it creates a bridge, I think, from where a lot of believers are because we have been so steeped in the importance of scripture that to jump right into all the brain science and all the incredible stuff that Jim and his team uh, are doing, it's just a big leap for a lot of people. And so I'm really hoping that my book can be a bridge, not only to uh, that whole other area of understanding the right side of the brain, but can be, a, but can help, especially evangelicals who have such a high regard uh, for the inerrancy of scripture to be able to see that there's, there's no problem here. And you can have a very robust biblical theology of growing in Christ that allows for how God created us to function. Hey guys, it's Brandon Robinson. Listen, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I know we have. We actually went for almost two hours during this conversation. Because of that, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna split this episode into part one and part two, but I have good news for you. If you are enjoying this conversation, Yes, if you are enjoying this conversation, Ken Baugh's book, Unhindered Abundance, is available for you right now. You can find it in the show notes, the link to his book, or you can do it the old-fashioned way. Type in Unhindered Abundance, Ken Baugh, into Google. Listen, we love you. We hope you're having an incredible day. We'll be back with you again soon. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes and go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events lastly you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com send us your thoughts send us your questions your bible questions your life questions whatever who knows your question might just inspire an upcoming episode thanks again for tuning in to doable discipleship i'm jason whelan and i hope you'll join us again next week